I'm Tiana Jay, the founder of the Humanitarian Changemakers Network. And I'm Lachlan, here to ask some interesting questions. Welcome, Welcome to, to Changemaker, Changemaker Q&A. With the rise of fake news, divisive politics, and growing insecurity created by social and economic inequality, we are often left with a media landscape dominated by dismal perspectives of the world. Young people need to learn about examples of positive change. Identifying potential solutions to global challenges is key to our public dialogue. As a solutions media podcast, we dive deep into current affairs and events, answer any questions you have about social change, and share stories and insights from young people and organisations active in the social change space. But before we begin, we would like to acknowledge and thank Australia's traditional owners and custodians for their continued care and protection of our land and waterways. We pay our respect to all elders past, present and emerging, and look to you for guidance as leaders of social justice. Now on to today's episode. Welcome back to Changemaker Q&A, everybody. For this week's episode, it's going to be a little bit different. What I thought I would do is actually share an interview that I did a few weeks ago from a student-led uh, grassroots advocacy network that is a part of the Queensland University of Technology's School of Public Health and Social Work. So I was approached by them to do a little interview, talk about my journey uh, beginning the Humanitarian Changemakers Network uh, and my kind of work as a changemaker over the years. And so I thought it might be uh, fun to kind of share that with you guys and just give you a little bit of an insight to my life and behind the scenes at HCN and kind of what led us to where we are today. So I hope you enjoy this episode. As always, if you have any specific questions that you would like me to answer about social change, feel free to follow us on Instagram at Humanitarian Changemakers or head to our website, humanitarianchangemakers.net forward slash podcast, and you can slide into our DMs or submit the form and ask any questions that you want me to answer in an upcoming episode. My, oh my God. There we go. All right. So hello everyone, um, my name's Jade Mikowski, I'm from uh, Grasslands Social Advocacy, so a QUT student-led digital project advocacy project, equipping people and organisations to tell their stories in a digital age. Speaking today with uh, Tiana Jovanovic, nailed it, <laughs> who is a PhD candidate with the University of Queensland and Indian Institute of Technology's Delhi's Academy of Research. Currently based at UQ School of Communication and Arts, she has an academic background in sociology, philosophy and a professional background in media and communications for a humanitarian and human rights organization. Prior to starting her PhD mid 2020, Tiani, Tiana founded the Humanitarian Changemakers Network, a Brisbane-based social enterprises that works for secondary schools and youth groups to catalyze young Australians to engage in the social change space and utilizing a passion for solutions, focused storytelling for social change. She edits the Changing Times newspaper, published a social change handbook for young people and hosts the Changemakers Q&A podcast. Tiana currently volunteers with a number of organizations and is a member of the Q Queensland Red Cross Youth Advisory Committee. So I thought we'll get into a hard one. Tell me about your dog and what is the silliest thing they've ever done? My dog. <laughs> oh, my dog's name is Rocco mm -hmm. and he is a seven-year-old Jack Russell. I adopted him uh, the start of 2019, I think. I really wanted a Jack Russell. So I hit up all of the uh, pet rescue centers in Southeast Queensland. And I was like, when you get a Jack Russell, mm -hmm. please let me know. Like, I really want a Jack Russell. Um, and then I went out and you do like a meet and greet and 
see if you like vibe with the dog and he honestly had no interest in me oh really nothing to do with me yeah like there was no connection there at least on his behalf but I didn't care I was like so smitten I was like yes he is the one uh what's the silliest thing he's done honestly just yesterday he jumped up onto someone's bed in my house and got into their leftover KFC and started eating like the KFC like chicken bones which is obviously not good for a dog to have cooked bones and then he was like farting really bad (laughs) I had a dog growing up yep that sounds like them yep yeah he does silly things all the time but that's the most recent one on my mind because I actually had to kick him out of our room for a while I was like I can't handle this now. no what to do. and they're like they, they're like who did that it wasn't me you know nah. I, I love Jack Russell's they're amazing yeah they're like I love them because they have like the personality of a big dog mm-hmm. but in like a small compact dog body yes. pick them up and they're like please okay yeah. and you're like no I must cart you around like a baby <laughs> literally all right, now onto the, the real stuff. So uh, do you remember the moment, the first moment when you decided to sort of pursue the field of social advocacy and like what was the driving force behind that moment? I think I do actually. I would have been probably 15 or 16. And at the time I was a youth member with Girl Guides Australia and I was also a junior leader at the time. And I was working on my Queen's Guide Award, which is kind of like the peak award that you can do within the organisation. There's a lot involved. You do like several hours of community service, leadership training, all of these different things. And one part of it is your focus. And I didn't really know what I wanted my focus to be. I was kind of just like a typical angsty 15-year-old girl, didn't want to listen to anyone, like Mm -hmm. didn't care what my mum had to say, like didn't want to listen to teachers, didn't really know what I was doing. And then I got a bunch of resources at our girl guide hut and one of them was a book it was uh all about the world association of girl guides and girl scouts global action theme which was essentially the uh global organization's response to the millennium development goals so this would have been back a few years maybe around 2010 when we still had the mdgs um and not the sustainable development goals which we have now Um, but i was basically just reading this book and it was all about how uh, leaders within the organization can teach young women and girls all about these big issues like eradicating poverty, um, achieving universal primary education, promoting gender equality, environmental sustainability, all that stuff. And I think it was like this, I still remember reading it like late one night in my bed and it was kind of like this pivotal moment where I just realized that there is so much more out there going on in the world than my little 15 year old dramas I went to like a Catholic all girls school and you know who likes who and who's doing what and who's wearing what and who's going to what party on the weekend was kind of like the biggest thing that was going on in my life and then all of a sudden I just kind of realized like wow there's actually so much out there but I think what this book really did was showed me that there was actually so much that even I could do and so I decided that the Millennium Development Goals would kind of be my focus for my Queen's Guide Award Uh, and over the next few years the last few years of high school while I was working on my Queen's Guide Award I ran like an advocacy campaign and raised money for UNICEF Um, I taught all of the girls within the district uh, that I volunteered with all about these different issues and in doing so I learned a lot about them and then that kind of just I don't know really motivated me and inspired me 
to kind of pursue, I knew I wanted to pursue something within that field when I finished high school. Uh, but then I ended up taking, I took a year off after high school mm. just to make sure that if I was going to go to uni and study something, it was going to be the right thing for me, which I'm really glad I did because honestly, I would have studied something completely different to yeah. what I ended up studying. <laughs> and yeah, it definitely led me down the right path, I think. I mean, it's amazing because, I mean, yeah, I remember being 15 a long time ago, but yeah, your world does feel very small and often you feel really powerless in it. You know, like you feel like your parents control a lot of what you do, where you go, you, dic- you know, dictate what you do. So it's amazing that you could even, I mean, even by that point you were volunteering, I think that's really impressive for a teenager to do because it's quite hard to see the world outside of that little bubble. So do you remember why you started volunteering in the first place? I... Well, I started with Girl Guides Australia. I joined as a six-year-old. Oh, wow. I, yeah. So I I was like a really shy kid, which anyone who knows me now would really struggle to believe. But I was like very shy, very timid, like to the point where in grade one, I remember the teacher was like asking questions and no one put their hands up. So she asked me to answer and I just burst into tears. Like I couldn't no. handle the pressure of like having to answer the question. And it was something so simple, like what was the most exciting thing you did on the weekend or something and I like little six-year-old Tiana I was just like so distraught I burst into tears and so someone suggested to my mom oh like my daughter does girl guides I think it would be really good for Tiana's confidence and self-esteem and kind of help her come out of her shell a little bit which it definitely did now my mom would argue that I probably need to go back into my (laughs) a little bit um but yeah I always enjoyed it I loved that it kind of gave me an opportunity to learn about all of these different things that I was never able to learn about through school um, and obviously I made so many friends and then by the time I was like 14 I think which is when you're old enough to kind of become like a junior leader I was kind of at the point where I what well, I didn't want to leave the organization but I felt like it was kind of time for me to move on because a lot of my friends that I'd made over the years had kind of left and gone on to do other things and so I kind of decided that I wanted to become a junior leader, which um, meant that at the time I was kind of assisting the actual qualified adult leaders to run the weekly meetings and stuff like that, which basically just prepared me to then become a qualified adult leader once I turned 18. That's a huge process. You're there for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so were you volunteering? I think I was looking at a profile. You had a couple of other places you were volunteering with over your teenage years as well. Um, I did a lot of volunteering, I think, through Girl Guides Australia. Mm. Um, And because part of my Queen's Guide Award involved um, a lot of community service. So there was a lot of um, stuff that I was doing like that, but through the organisation. Well, it's organised of them, you know. Yeah. One starting point, because it's it's hard as a teenager to, like, know where you can go and even have places accept you because, you know, teenagers have that stereotype. So it's really good. Um, Obviously, you still want to work with youth and you know education there do you think you've all you always wanted to work with youth or would, do you think you might want to work with older people later on how do you how do you see that I was actually thinking about that a lot lately mm. um, but I was I when I was younger I when people asked me like what do you want to be when you grow up I think until about the age of like 13 or 14 I always said that I wanted to be a teacher mm. I don't really know why I said that I think it was just because I loved I loved to learn as a kid and I think because the only environment that you really learn within when you're that young is in like a structured school environment. So I just thought that like the logical next step was probably for me to become a teacher. Uh, And in 
my own way I kind of have always kind of been a teacher through a lot of the volunteering and stuff that I've done it's just been like less formal Mm -hmm. forms of education Um, but even when I was like a junior leader with girl guides a lot of the parents who were teachers or were teacher aides would always come up to me and be like oh you know you should really think about becoming a teacher when you finish we need more teachers like you you're so passionate blah 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 blah. and I remember like feeling so bad when I was like 15 or 16 I was starting to think that I didn't actually Mm want to study teaching and become a teacher but I wanted to do something else um but yeah through the work that I do with HCN um, and some of the other organizations that I've volunteered with I've always really enjoyed teaching young people through a less formal education format so teaching them through workshops and kind of fun activities where they don't realize that they're learning learning something because they're enjoying it so much Um, but with the humanitarian change makers network as an organization it is kind of targeted towards young people we don't kind of say youth in the strict sense that it's like 15 to 25 or 15 to 30 year olds but I was thinking about that the other day because I I was born in 1996 which means I am the last year to be considered a millennial Mm -hmm. and I was just thinking about at what point like will I no longer be considered a young person yeah because I'm technically not part of like Gen Z but I, I feel like I identify with Gen Z maybe a little bit more than millennials. I don't know. Millennials to me are just like that little bit older. I feel I like don't know. I'm, um, yeah. I was born 92. So it's like I'm, I'm in the younger end of the millennials and there are millennials I know that are like set up with a house and kids and, you know, they're very far ahead and you wouldn't say yeah. that they're, yeah, they're, they're young at all. You know, they're in their late 30s, early 40s. So it's, uh, yeah, when you're, when you're a little bit younger and you've grown up with more technology and sort of the more Gen Z stuff, yeah, you're sort of in that weird area of maybe easier to connect with them in that way. Yeah, and I think because most of the people that I do work with tend to be in that Gen Z, I always wonder at what point, like, am I going to outgrow my own yeah. organisation? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, because I say, like, we're made, like, we're an organisation of young change makers Mm -hmm. or young change makers at what point will I no longer be a young change maker like I'm already I'm already 25 I'm closer to 30 now than 20 so like yeah it just makes me think like it's still such a like a young organization but like at what point am I going to need to like Mm. pass the leadership responsibilities onto someone else because I don't want to be like that older person yes yeah. going in organization for young people you're going in <laughs> hey kids and you're like in your 30s yeah. you know yeah I, I can see that um, I feel like 30 will kind of be my cutoff yeah I'm gonna yeah and that's fair like five you... years to grow and find yeah. people to take over and yeah well oh, tell them through. tell me how did you start the organization like that's a huge process like I I can't even imagine it. So like, was that a difficult, was it, were there lots of highs and lows? You know, it must be more established now, but the beginning must've been chaotic. It honestly wasn't too bad in the beginning, only because I didn't start it with the intention of it becoming what it is now. So in the beginning, um, it would have been around 2019 and I was getting invited to a few different schools and um, organizations to talk with young people just about, what social change is, how they can get involved in the social change space. And from there, I developed kind of like a framework that would allow me to easily communicate what social change is and how young people can bring it about just to kind of make these workshops easier for me. 
Um, and so I developed this framework and I was like, okay, like this is actually kind of cool. And so I had a personal blog at the time and I just kind of posted the framework on there. And then when I went to different events or hosted workshops for groups that were kind of about like a specialized topic, I'd maybe create like a special resource or a tool for them and just put it on this blog um, that would kind of let them learn about it a little bit more. And then I kind of started getting a lot of really positive feedback. And I kind of thought that maybe this could be something that's a little bit bigger than just me. And so I decided to create a new separate blog and I didn't know what to call it. And I don't know how I came up with the name Humanitarian Changemakers Network, but I somehow came up with that name and the domain was available. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to make like an Instagram page for this and kind of create this website. And in the beginning, it was just a blog where I was still going around running these workshops and kind of sharing resources. And then the more young people I kind of began to speak to, I kind of noticed what some of the gaps were and some of the things that were kind of stopping them from engaging in the social change space. And for a lot of them, it was kind of this really dismal media landscape that was dominated by fake news and kind of negative stories about all of the problems in the world. And it was leaving them feeling kind of helpless about everything. So I was like, okay, maybe something we need to kind of start doing is just providing some more positive or solution focused news stories and so now as we've kind of began to grow we're switching our focus from just running workshops which isn't super scalable and also not super good for me when I'm trying to do a PhD as well (laughs) (laughs) always running these workshops because it does kind of take a lot to actually organize them and because every workshop is tailored to the specific group um, or school or whatever that we work with Um, so we're kind of now trying to reach a wider audience of young people by diving deep and using our podcast and our news platform to kind of explore potential solutions to different problems and letting young people know the ways that they can kind of engage in addressing local or global challenges. How, like I've read your profile, even just you talking out, how do you juggle everything? Because I've been through your Instagram, your YouTube and everything and it's like, there's so much I, I how do you how when do you sleep surprisingly I actually sleep really well now and I get I get a good seven to eight hours a night uh but it wasn't always like that mm. and I've definitely had to kind of learn how to overcome the burnout culture that I think is so prevalent in the social change space I mean we already kind of live in a culture where burnout is kind of normalized and there's not really this like culture of care it's a very like hustle based culture and I think that's kind of amplified in the world of social change because there's this extra level of guilt because a lot of the time it's not about you it's not about you progressing your career or doing things for yourself it's about you doing what you think is right what you're morally compelled to do or you know helping others or serving others and so you feel guilty when you take a break or you decide that you know you're not going to go to that particular protest because you need to work to pay rent or whatever it might be. And I think it was that kind of guilt that led me to burnout, which would have been around the time I started HCM. And since then I've really had to learn how to just kind of create a culture of care in my life and balance everything. But with that said, I mean, I do a lot and I'll be the first to admit that I do a lot and potentially take on too much. But all of the things that I do are things that I genuinely love. Mm. And so most of the time it doesn't feel like work. Like a lot of the volunteering that I do, like 
it's just something that I'm really passionate about and so it doesn't really feel like work to me even the stuff I do for HCN most of the time unless it's like really boring like admin stuff (laughs) record like to me recording a podcast episode and answering young people's questions about particular topics is something that like I genuinely enjoy and so it doesn't feel like work to me I think that's the big secret they always tell us that growing up find something you love and it's so rare to find it like that's it's really impressive or if people find it it does take a long time to to get that and then to balance that with your own personal life and so it's good that you've now found that balance um if you had to give advice to a younger person dealing with burnout in this sort of field would it just be about creating that culture of care or is there something more specific you you would recommend I think a big thing for me was the realization that you don't need to justify rest. I always felt like if I was going to take a break, I needed to somehow justify it and say, well, okay, like I've got all of these things ticked off my to-do list today. So now I'm entitled to a break or I'd be like, okay, you know, if I take a break now, it means that I'm going to be so much more effective at working tomorrow. When in reality, like you don't need to justify having rest. Um, you know, we kind of just set these limitations and these standards on ourselves. And once we realize that, you know, there's no one judging us for wanting to watch Netflix in the afternoon (laughs) instead of, you know, do some volunteer work, then I think it makes it so much easier to just realize that it's okay. Yeah. And I mean, there are like so many benefits to actually taking care of yourself, but that shouldn't be the reason you do it. That's like you're, yeah. You're accountable to yourself. Yeah. That mindset shift for me was kind of like, I think the biggest thing in learning how to just kind of create a culture of care and rest more and not put so much pressure on myself or feel guilty for wanting to prioritize self-care. Yeah. And I think that's not just within the social advocacy field or social change. I think that's a lot of people do that, you know, like, oh, I'll I'll take a minute to myself, but but I need to tell everyone why I'm doing it. You know, I don't want to, it's like, yeah, you do. You, You are accountable to yourself. You can take time to yourself. I think that's really important. Um, you mentioned before about uh, your travel and I've seen a lot of your travel pics. Looks fun, but also while you're over there, do you ever engage in other modes of social change? Do you have you ever learned anything over there that the way people engage in that field over there and you've taken it on board or? Um, one of the first, well, the first two kind of international trips I took, the first one was the one that got me into travel in the first place. I went to a conference back in 2013 when I was 17. Uh, I got invited to this conference because of some of the advocacy work that I'd done for my Queen's Guide Award. And when I went over there, like to me, the fact that it was in Hong Kong was like an inconvenience because it meant I had to like pay money for a flight and I had to like go out of my way and I'd never traveled on my own before. So I was really nervous about it. It was more just the fact that I was getting to meet other young people that were actually interested in social change and social advocacy, which was not something that I'd found yet back in Brisbane. Um, But I went to this conference and there was kind of like this theme that I noticed a lot of the speakers were saying, and they were all kind of saying that, you know, one person, literally, I think they said the words, I can see that you're all like a really passionate group of young people. But my advice is that if you want to change the world, you have to experience it first. And then he spoke about the importance of just travel and immersing yourself in other cultures and all of that stuff and so I was like okay this guy you know this guy knows his stuff so if he says I need to travel then I need to travel and I was already planning on taking that year off after high school and so I was like okay it's going to be my goal to just travel as much as I can while I'm at university so that by the time I finish university I thought I would 
when I, I was like, I'll be done with travel and I'll be done with university and yep. then I'll be ready for my career. <laughs> travel is like a drug. The more you do it, the more you want it. But um, then after that, the next trip I did was one that I did through uh, the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts to one of their world centers in Sangam in India. And they have a whole bunch of different partner organizations that they work with on an ongoing basis. And so I went over there to work on a project because I was really passionate about art and drama. And I was actually going to study that at university. That's what I thought I was gonna study at university yeah. and then I didn't end up studying it. Um, but I went over to help uh, work on a project where we used performing arts to create um, these performances that people who were a part of this organization would perform in different slum communities about um, family violence and violence towards women. Um, and I worked on that project and I'm really glad that I did that. And then I'm also really glad that soon after I learned about volunteer tourism, because if I hadn't learned about the negative impacts of volunteer tourism, I probably would have been really inclined to go and do one of those trips where you kind of like pay to volunteer and they tend to be more exploitative and exist kind of more as a business for the owners to profit from than they are actually about creating positive social impact. Um, but yeah, I don't know how I, I think I just read an article about it or something and then I kind of explored it more and I learned about volunteer tourism. And that's not to say that all volunteer tourism is bad, but generally as a whole, if you're doing any kind of volunteer work where it's short term and you don't need any kind of specialized skills or qualifications for, then the work is probably either not needed or it could be done by locals who could actually get paid to do it as opposed to you paying a big company or organization to go over and do the work for them. Yeah. And you hear so many horror stories about like orphan tourism and um, places where, you know, you go and like build a school and then a week after you're done, they come and knock it down oh. and the next comes in and like, and it's just, yeah. it's ridiculous. Um, and I'm also, I think another reason that I didn't do any of that kind of travel was also just because I simply couldn't afford it yeah fair. <laughs> I was I was I was like a you know poor 18 year old and I just moved out of home and I was like okay how am I gonna you know pay rent and travel and do all of these things that I want to do um so I mostly just backpacked around and even now and I'm a little bit older and my budget is not as tight I still tend to just stay in hostels I think it's like the best way to meet people you can meet people from you know all over the world even if you go to like a backpackers hostel in like Adelaide mm -hmm. but I think that's the beauty of it um, and just meeting new people and realizing that you know people come from all different backgrounds and they have such different views that you might have and you know all of these different things but I think the one thing that travel taught me is like at the end of the day it doesn't matter how different we are we're like at our core we're all kind of the same I think people when you strip away all of the negative things most people are kind people we're compassionate we all want the best for our community and whatnot so I think travel has yeah definitely taught me a lot of really important lessons uh, I mean it must be hard with COVID and everything you know being locked down it's been so hard I mean we can go to New Zealand can't we does that does that count yeah I mean I think they they got rid of the bubble didn't they there was the whole travel bubble with New Zealand but I think they yeah I don't know what's happening but I mean hopefully it comes back and you can you can keep going so 
um, about your book I, as well. Um, when did you decide that you wanted to, one, write it, and two, uh, I guess, put it out in the world? Because um, it seems amazing, you know, that like you could, I mean, you self-published it, didn't you? Yeah. So I think the idea for it kind of came during COVID when I wasn't able to run any of the workshops that I was previously running. And I was like trying to think of ways that I could still reach young Aussies and teach them the framework for social change. And I just kind of thought that maybe a book would be the best way to do that because I, I thought about putting together like kind of like an online course or whatever, but I just felt like I had so much to say and I was like the only way I can say it all is if I just write it all out mm -hmm. in a book so I was like okay I'm gonna give this a shot um and so it's so funny I say that it took me about six months to write it but I think it took me about five and a half months of planning it and then two weeks of just me sitting out mm -hmm. and like smashing the writing I, I just got in like my own head like I always do and you try and plan things and make them perfect but like in reality I knew everything that I needed to know mm -hmm. Um, like this is the kind of stuff that I've been teaching in these workshops and that I've been learning about for most of my adult life and so I took myself on a writing retreat mm -hmm. I went on to like Groupon and I found like a really nice resort and I was like okay I'm gonna spend five days here and I spent five days there with like no wi-fi I just sat down and wrote and I got like my first full draft written in like those five days mm -hmm. um, and then yeah I looked at all of my different options and I decided that self-publishing would be the best just because I want all of the money from the sales of the book to go back into funding the humanitarian change makers network because that's always been kind of like the biggest struggle that I've found over the years is actually trying to fund it all <laughs> yeah fair um I know you've got was it four or five um people working with you at the moment we have a few mm. uh, most people are on a volunteer basis uh I don't get paid um but we have one team member who is incredible and I wouldn't be able to do it without him so he's like our first paid staff which is exciting that is exciting yeah that's a step yeah he's I actually met him when I was running a workshop for his school would have been back in 2019 and he hosted a mental health podcast a really good podcast and he asked if he could interview me for his podcast and I was like yeah sure and then I interviewed him and I must have told him after the interview that I was kind of thinking of starting the humanitarian change makers network and like turning it into this bigger thing beyond me and he was like yeah you should do that like that sounds really great go for it and he like fully hypes me up Aww. and he's literally like been there from the beginning <laughs> he was one of my first ever writers um and now he's studying journalism so he's really good sounds like a keeper yeah, he yeah. Is. straight so he's straight out of school was he he was still in school when oh, I met wow. him I think he was year 12 um and yeah now he's a journalism student and yeah even though like once we kind of started getting like recurring revenue I was like okay what am I going to do with this like what's the biggest priority and for me like obviously I've done so much volunteering over the years but I've also seen that I think like good people doing good work should be financially compensated for it. And something that I've never wanted to do is rely too heavily on people volunteering. And so I was like, it's really important to me to be able to pay him. And so I was like, even if 
I can barely afford it. <laughs> I'm going to start paying him. I think that's a big step. And uh, maybe down the line, you know, it'll become more of that. Um, on a, not a sadder note, but um, what do you think is out of all of this is sort of uh, the biggest mistake you've ever made, you know, and uh, like, how, how did you find yourself handling it in, in looking back in reflection? Biggest mistake I have made. Because even us talking about burnout, obviously that was something that yeah. you had to find that balance for. I think perhaps the biggest mistake I've probably made in all aspects of my life or career is probably just overthinking things and thinking that everything needs to be perfectly planned out before you actually start. I think this is something that I'm much better at now and something that I kind of learned about in there's like a book it's called the lean startup method and it's mostly for people running businesses or startups and it's about needing to fail mm. um, you obviously need to fail so many times before you find the right idea or the right business um, and this book is kind of about testing your idea and failing quickly and doing that over and over again so that you can get to kind of where you need to be faster and I think that that's applicable for kind of all aspects of social change and whether it's running a business or running an advocacy or an activism campaign or whatever it might be even if it's just figuring out what to study or what kind of path you want to go down the best way to figure it out is to actually engage in things and get hands-on rather than just thinking about them and figure out what works for you or what doesn't work for you fast and then move on to the next thing. I think failure is that thing that everyone's really terrified of, you know, that you, you fail once and that's it, you know, like you can never reapproach something and that's, um, it's not really a great mindset. Yeah. Going in it's, but it's sort of, um, I guess you maybe have to separate your ego from it. Like it's okay for me to fail. This doesn't represent me, you know, or say anything about me. It's just, you can't get good at something until you suck at it. You know, <laughs> it's first step. Exactly. And just kind of looking at things, like not looking at looking at it like failure, just looking at it like you've succeeded mm -hmm. in figuring out what doesn't work for you or yes. what's, you know, not the right option for you. And so if you look at it like that, well, it is a success because you know exactly what not to do next time. I think that's a really good way to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast, okay, what do you think has been your proudest moment? Oh, I know there's probably a lot. <laughs> is a good thing I, th I think one of my proudest moments is actually probably getting into my PhD yeah I was always like I was always a kind of studious student in high school until I got to about that kind of 15 16 mark where I just lost all interest in school didn't really care didn't even know if I was going to go to university and I think people assume that I was always really good at uni like I got sixes or sevens but I didn't <laughs> I my GPA wasn't great um, and that's partly because I didn't really apply myself to university um, as well as I could have. I kind of prioritised other things like travelling and doing all of my volunteering and stuff which I certainly don't regret um, but I didn't have the best GPA and for me to get into an honours program afterwards I had to go to the head of school so I did two bachelor's degrees. I did a bachelor of global studies and then a bachelor of arts in sociology and philosophy. And philosophy was the only thing that I was actually really, really good at. 
and I'd never got anything less than like a distinction for an assignment or anything in philosophy. So I just went to like the head of philosophy at my university and I said, look, I know my overall GPA is not great, but I'm really good at philosophy. Do you think you'd let me do an honours? And he was like, yeah, of course, like I'll sign off on it. So that's how I got into my honours program in the first place. Like I didn't even have the grades to get into <laughs> an honours program. And then if I'm being completely honest, 2019, just for me personally, was like a bit of a shit show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not a good year for me. So much happened. And at the end of the year, I had like four weeks to go and I had like hardly any of my thesis written. And I had to break my lease and like move out and had nowhere to go. Luckily, my grandma was um, overseas in Serbia, which is where she's from. And so... I just like called her up and I was like, can I please stay in your house and just finish my honours thesis and then I'll find somewhere else to live. And she was like, of course. So I went and stayed there and I just for like four weeks straight just wrote out this thing. I don't know how I did it, but I, I think I just scraped through with a second class division A, which is like the bare minimum <laughs> that you can use to get into a PhD program. And honestly, even that surprised me. Like I thought I was going to get like third class honors I didn't think I was going to do it I think the only thing that saved me was the fact that because you do a little bit of coursework as well and I'd done my coursework at the start of the year and I did okay with the coursework so I just had the grades to get into a PhD program and I honestly like I wasn't even going to apply for the one that I'm currently in I remember looking at it and I was like that looks amazing but there's no way that like I'm qualified enough for that but my friend was like just do it anyway like it'll be good practice mm -hmm. and I was like okay I'm gonna do it I'm gonna try and I was honestly so surprised when I got in like I cried so much oh. <laughs> sounds like an amazing moment like yeah I'd say that's probably one of my proudest moments and I imagine yeah, I like, followed up finishing the PhD and putting it up on I the know and stuff every day like I question what I'm doing here I'm just like oh my goodness I can't believe I wanted this I can't believe I chose to be perpetually stressed for three years but how long have you got to I, go on it I just passed my confirmation so I'm a third of the way through won't be long it'll it's gonna go quickly it always does yeah the first year kind of flew by I still like I I'm actually starting to realize this not just about my PhD but about everything I think you think that there'll be a point in your life where you feel like you know what you're doing. And I just like, I always thought like at uni, I was like, if I ever did like a master's or a PhD, like that would be the point where I really like, I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. The same when I started like HCN, I was like, there'll be a point where like, you know, it's like a, like an established startup and I'll feel like I like really know what I'm doing as like a founder or a CEO. And I don't think I'm ever going to get to that point. I don't think I'm ever going to get to the point where I actually feel like I know what I'm doing mm -hmm. and that's okay. I think I've learned to just embrace the unknown. I think it can be a bit of an illusion. Happen. Yeah. Like you never really, yeah. it's like being an adult. You never really feel yeah. like an adult. You just are an adult. You just, never yeah, exactly. Uh, if you could give any advice to someone wanting to follow in your footsteps or even just starting uh, the kind of work that you're doing or wanting to make a difference what would be the biggest thing you could tell them I think one piece of advice I always like to give is that idea that clarity comes from engaging in things not thinking about things yeah. you can spend all day thinking about you know what kind of job might be suited towards you or what kind of career path or what you might want to study or what kind of volunteering role might be good for you but like the only way you're really going to know is if you actually get out there and do it and kind of that whole idea of like 
if you're going to fail, get out there, fail quickly and move on to the next thing. Another thing in terms of like careers and stuff like that is one thing that I think I've always done without actually realizing that I've done it. Like people always ask you when you're younger, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or like when you start uni, people are always like, okay, like, what do you want to be when you finish Mm -hmm. your degree? But the one thing I've never done is like focus on being anything. Like I've never focused on a particular role that I've wanted to have or any kind of like identity. Um, I've always just done like focused on doing what I enjoy doing. And if you focus on doing the things that you love or the things that you're good at or the things that you enjoy, the right kind of roles and opportunities will find you. And so just kind of figuring out what it is that you enjoy and what it is that you're good at and focus on doing those things as opposed to being something or being someone. And I think the rest will kind of just fall into place. I think there comes a point even with study where a lot of people do their degrees and then realise that's it's not actually the right, you know, getting out into the field. I think getting in the field is, yeah, getting out there and, and firsthand and it's okay that it didn't work out, you know. Like, like I said, you're learning something from that process. Uh, even if it costs you a few years and a little bit of money, you know, Um, I think it's a really good message to take home. Um, This has been amazing. I I pretty much burned out all my questions. Um, Thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, No, no worries. You have a very busy schedule. So (laughs) any excuse for me to like not do my actual PhD research, like I'm so here for. Look, that's fair. And um, hopefully this afternoon, if you get your chance, watch a little bit of Netflix. Um, I know you live with your girlfriend. If you, you know, spend some time and uh, hug your dog for me, please. I will hug my dog. Also, I always hug my dog. Yeah, I was going to say, I've got, I think about my pets all the time and I'm like, when do I get back to them? Okay. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we'll wrap thank it up you. and uh, can't think of anything else to say. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Changemaker Q&A. If you have a question about changing the world that you'd like me to answer, just head to humanitarianchangemakers.net forward slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review so that we can get the word out and equip and empower as many young people as we can to change the world. The Humanitarian Changemakers Network is a solutions media and education platform, so feel free to head to our website for plenty more news and resources to help you make change happen.